in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this morning. And so as we continue in our Once the, uh, What's the Point series, I invite you to take a copy of God's Word. If you need one, it's right there in front of you in the pew rack. And so take a copy of God's Word, power it up on your phone, open it up. If you have your own copy, Ecclesiastes, just after the book of Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and we're in chapter number 8 this morning. Those of you that have been with us throughout our study of Ecclesiastes should know by now that Ecclesiastes is a very real book. Uh, I love it for that reason. It's kind of an in-your-face book in which Solomon uh, teaches us practical realism about life in its various dimensions. Life can be very confusing. Life can be mysterious. Life can be challenging. Life can be very abrupt. Life can be abusive even sometimes. There are all kinds of paradoxes with life, all kinds of obsessions. And we open the Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes and we find that the words of the writer are as direct as they come in any book of the Bible in the, uh, throughout the entirety of Scripture. It's life, unvarnished, unshaded. Uh, and some people read that, uh, as we've talked about before, and often find that somewhat discouraging. But most who've walked with the Lord for a little while, most of us who've been around the block, not just with the Lord, but who've been around the block for a little bit of time with life in general, if you read it like I do, with the right set of lenses on, uh, you find Solomon's honesty uh, not only spot on, not only do you find yourself nodding your head saying, you know what, that's right, that's right. But you find that kind of honesty very refreshing as well. King Solomon of Israel, an aged King Solomon by this time, is our preacher. He's our Ecclesiastes. That's what the word means. Ecclesiastes in the Greek is a word that means preacher, teacher. It can also mean seeker. It's the one who gathers the assembly together for the purpose of providing insight and wisdom and instruction. And that's who Solomon is. He's our Ecclesiastes, and he's leading us in what amounts to, frankly, a 12-chapter sermon. You think my 40-minute sermons are long. If I had to read Ecclesiastes start to finish, y'all would be here for a while. And so this book is basically a sermon. It's kind of a disjointed sermon. It's not always tightly knit together. And we find the preacher kind of bouncing from one subject matter to the next in much the same way as he does in the book of Proverbs. But it's a message about the meaningless and the emptiness of life when life is lived merely, to use his words, under the sun. If you just live life from a worldly perspective and a worldly point of view, then you are going to find it meaningless. You are going to find it empty. But it's important not to get stuck in the first couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes, but to read it all the way through, even to the last line of the book. Because you know how it starts, right? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That's the beginning bookend, but you need to go all the way to the very end and complete the cycle where Solomon will remind us, 
Life is not merely meant to be lived under the sun, but for those who know God and love God and serve God, it's meant to be lived above the sun. How does he end the book? Here is the conclusion of the matter, Solomon will say, fear God. And if you do that, if you learn to fear God, value God, love God, and trust God, then everything's going to be all right, even when you don't understand life in all of its mystery. Can I have an amen this morning? And so we're looking at it in totality today. And this morning, uh, we're going to get a great example of learning to prioritize and to emphasize what God says is important as we move into chapter 8 of our study. Solomon is going to return to the subject of wisdom, something that he knows a little bit about, And something that he's very well known for, if I were to ask you, what's the first word that comes to mind when I mention the name Solomon, probably at least eight out of every 10 people in here would shout the word wisdom. Isn't that right? Because he's known in the Bible, in the books of the Kings, for example, as this man of great wisdom who understood his need for wisdom and asked for wisdom and God rewarded that uh, wise response of Solomon by giving him wisdom. He didn't always live up to it. He was less than perfect. But he's a man who knew the value of wisdom and who wrote a lot about wisdom. And we know that, of course, because that's the principal theme in his most popular book, which is the book of Proverbs. Uh, And so uh, Solomon, much in the same way as he does in Proverbs here in Ecclesiastes, he gives us uh, a call to live life wisely and responsibly. And that's going to be something that's very important for the people of God because you're not always going to know what the right thing to do. I don't know if you know it or not, but the Bible's not going to address every issue specific to your life. It's going to give you a lot of generalities, a lot of things that you can apply to the specific issues of your life. But the Bible's not going to tell you whether to buy a Ford or buy a Chevy. Those words are not translated from the Greek in the Bible. The Bible's not going to tell you whether you need to live and plant your family in Florida or Alabama or Mississippi. It's not going to tell you that. And so whether something is right or wrong is oftentimes not always easy to find out. But you can apply certain principles from the Bible as you address the question, is this decision a wise decision? Or from a biblical point of view, will this decision be a foolish decision? And that's where Solomon in all of his writings, for that matter, can be very, very helpful to the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, as we venture into chapter 8, we're going to look at wisdom, particularly as it relates to the authorities of our lives. So I have the unenviable task of talking to you about how to be subject to God-given authority in life. I don't know why in the world I didn't give this subject to Pastor Mitchell while I was gone. Because nobody likes to submit or subject themselves to authority. Isn't that right? But here's the thing. What does the Bible say about God? God is not the author of confusion. And because of that, because God is a God of order, a God of practicality, a God of productivity, where he wants us to live in a way that produces blessing and that results in rejoicing. God is a God of order. And in every relational and societal dynamic, God establishes those who lead and those who follow that leadership. 
That's true in multiplicity of areas. It's true for husbands and wives, right? It's certainly true for parents and children. It's true for employers and employees. It's true for athletes and coaches. It's true in the United States military, amen, where there is a chain of command, and if that thing goes away, we're in a boatload of trouble. Isn't that right? So God is into that, and God vests leadership in the lives of certain authorities, and then he instructs the rest as those people conduct their lives in a righteous kind of way, you follow them. And by following and obeying them, you are following and obeying God himself. Everybody with me so far, say amen. Let's see how Solomon couches it. Who is, by the way, the king of Israel? Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command. Because of God's oath to him, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing from the perspective of God. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? If that's not a statement about the times in which we live, I don't know what is. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Father, this morning we pray that you'll illumine our minds, our souls, and our spirits from the word of God. We're incapable of properly understanding it, much less applying it, apart from the power of your Holy Spirit. So we yield to him today. We resist the devil and trust that by the power of the Spirit, he'll flee from us. And we give the Spirit of God total control and authority in this place today. May the word of the living God be cast across the board and broadly and may it find <clears throat> receptivity on good soil today that God may be glorified through Christ, our risen King, in whose name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Solomon begins this passage, first of all, with a general statement about, one, the importance of wisdom. The importance of wisdom. This is something we'd expect from Solomon. It's a subject that he will return to frequently throughout the rest of Ecclesiastes. As you will see, virtually everything that else that we have to say throughout this series will be somehow directly related to living life wisely as opposed to foolishly. And Solomon's known for that. That should come as no surprise to us. He's known for wisdom, especially in Proverbs, as we mentioned a moment ago. Notice what he says, for example, in Proverbs 8 and verse 11. 
Wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. And here in Ecclesiastes 8, he asks the question along the same lines in the very first verse, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? And Solomon, of course, is speaking here about the rarity of the wise person. Wise people are not in abundance in the world today. Y'all know that. Present company excluded, of course. But they're just not, people make crazy decisions that are just, and you, you know what they are. You read what people are doing on social media and you watch what they're doing on television. And you're thinking, what are people thinking, you know? And that's because there's just not an abundance of wisdom. And that's why Solomon begins, who is like the wise? You know, where is the value in people's judgments these days? It's a rare thing, just like a jewel is rare. That's why it's so valuable. It's a rare thing for a person to be able to see life and to respond to life from God's perspective. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Well, that's not in abundance even among the people of God many times. So we're going to learn to live with the very mind of God, with the very heart of God. That, of course, means knowing God's word because God's word is God's will. Can I have an amen? So there's no way to do God's will and there's no way to live wisely apart from the book of God. And so it's a very rare thing. Solomon's addressing it here. And all throughout Ecclesiastes up to this point, Solomon has painted a picture of how difficult it is to understand everything that happens in life. A lot of paradox about life, a lot of perplexities. Many people respond to the difficulties of life, the inequities of life, the injustices of life with bitterness and anger and cynicism. You can tell how people are responding to life by just how they carry themselves, by how they comport themselves, because there's a lot of joyless people among the wiseless people of the world today. But the Bible says to respond to life, even when you don't understand it, with cynicism and bitterness and even hostility and anger is a foolish response because that's a response that demonstrates a person that does not understand the goodness and the sovereignty of God, that God is truly in control of everything. Man, if you believe that, you can live life even in the craziness of this world with a significant joy. The Bible calls it a joy that's unspeakable and full. But you got to be walking with the Lord. Otherwise, the world's going to bring you down and drag you down. A person who's able to remain steadfast through the confusion of life and the disappointments of life without breaking is a rare person indeed. There's a bunch of those kind of people in the Bible. Joseph, for example, is one of those guys, right? Talk about being oppressed by life. Daniel is another one. These were guys that... Two guys in particular seemed to do everything right when everything around them was wrong, when everything was sour, when everything was bitter, when everything was defeatist, when everything was unjust. They stood tall. They lived for the Lord. And they made wise decisions in the will of God even when those decisions cost them. They stayed steadfast in their devotion to God, even though both of them were in foreign lands when we learn about them fundamentally. They were wise in their work. They were wise in their relationships. They were wise in their spiritual lives. The Bible says they possessed exceptional qualities. Even though both of them were in service to foreign kings 
who didn't at all think like them. But when we look at Daniel in particular, the greatest demonstration of wisdom that you see in the life of Daniel is his faithful obedience to God. Even though that faithful obedience to God required him to engage in what's commonly known today as civil disobedience to the king. He had to disobey the king in order to stay faithful to God. And many would describe that as just foolishness because of the costs that are often associated with doing that. Many would say that that was not a smart thing to face a den of lions, to go into a den of lions. Would you want to look eyeball to eyeball with a bunch of lions in a hole in the ground? Not me, right? But Daniel was willing to do it. And and when you read about his life in the Bible, there's no evidence that he even batted an eye about it. He just carried on about his life, prayed three times a day, every day. He didn't change his routine one bit. In the good times, three times a day in prayer. In the bad times, three times a day in prayer. Didn't alter his life with God one iota. And when the crucial decision of his life came, it was not at all difficult. He didn't have to get on the ground and roll around in agony, taking maylocks for hours. He knew exactly what the right thing to do was. Obeying God rather than man was the wisest choice that he could make. And those kinds of decisions obviously come with a seasoned spiritual maturity and courage that comes from time spent lingering in the awesome presence of a holy and sovereign God. But here Solomon reminds us that not only their spiritual benefits to gathering and living wisely, gathering wisdom and learning to appropriate it in life. He reminds us too that there are physical benefits to those who live wisely. When you learn, when you walk consistently in the presence of God and you learn to make wise decisions in the will of God that result in the blessing of God, it'll actually change your appearance. It'll make you good looking, the Bible says, as opposed to craggy, and sour and dour. That's what he says here. Haven't you heard it said before? The presence of the Lord in a person's life, the joy of Jesus, the peace that passes understanding inevitably affects a person's countenance. It's not hard to tell whether a person is living joyfully or whether a person is ground down and beat down by the difficulties of life. The Bible actually affirms that conventional wisdom. That's verse 1. A man's wisdom makes his face what? Said out loud. Shine. And the hardness of his face is what? See, that's what God can do. I'm just telling you this morning, I still believe that our God is a transforming God. That my God can change my life. That he can change my attitude. That he can change my outlook. And now I'm even more excited because I learned from the Bible that he can even change my appearance without going to the doctor for that. Somebody say amen. And so wisdom can do that for you. True wisdom means knowing God and it means knowing and doing and living in the will of God. And when you do that, that brings a joy to life that changes everything. Your mannerisms, your expressions, the tone of your voice. Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years, said one time that he believed that the face of a typical Christian would make a great book cover 
for the book of Ecclesia, uh, for the book of Lamentations. And oftentimes that's true, and it ought not be that way. Grace is transformational. That's why we need it. That's why we're so desperate for it. Show me somebody that's sour, who walks around with a scowl on their face most of the time. Never happy unless they're unhappy, and you all know people like that. And I'll show you somebody that's not walking in the Spirit of God, not walking in the wisdom of God, not living in the Word of God. And that's why life is often joyless and barren and dry. So this is the importance of wisdom in the life of God's people. Now, the second dimension is an application of wisdom. And we want to take a a few minutes because having made this general statement about the critical nature of wisdom, why it's important and what it can do for a person's life, Solomon now, as he does really through the rest of the book, he applies it in various kinds of ways. What can wisdom do for you? It's like the old UPS commercial. What can Brown do for you? Well, what can wisdom do for you? Well, it can do a lot of things. And Solomon moves from the question of what wisdom looks like to how a wise person is supposed to act, how it changes their life. And this pretty much dominates the rest of the message of the book. And of all things, he begins with this discussion of how wisdom is demonstrated in our response to the God-given authorities over our lives, most particularly in this passage to what we might call the civil authorities in our life. Look at verse number two. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he does what he pleases, and the word of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? Now let's stop there for just a moment because I want you to first of all gather the general command, the general imperative of this passage, and it's right out of the gate. Keep the king's command. Now can I just say this morning, this ain't the most popular command in the Bible. Uh, especially in a free country, in Western countries like ours, because we don't live under a king. We don't live under an absolute ruler like they did most of the time in the biblical period, Old Testament and New. But this does represent an important principle that we do see regularly throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, namely the general principle of submission to our civil authorities. Jesus, for example, affirmed that when in response to a question about paying taxes, said to the religious leaders who were asking him the question, one of the most famous statements out of Jesus' mouth, even though it's not always one of the popular statements, and it's this, render unto Caesars the things which are Caesars. Have you all heard this before? And render unto God the things that are God's. Now, that's not at all what the rabbis wanted to hear Jesus say because they were taxed, I'm telling you, even if you pay a 22, 25% tax rate in the United States, you got it good compared to what they had to pay because tax collectors were low-down, money-grubbing cheats, men like Zacchaeus. There was a reason nobody liked Zacchaeus even though he was a Jew because they could tack on surcharges onto the Roman tax rate 
ever how high they wanted to take it and they just put it right in their pockets. And the religious authorities knew that. And so they wanted Jesus, this upstart rabbi who was giving all of this new and creative teaching that they'd never heard before, to apply some of that new and creative teaching to the civil powers of the day and he didn't do it. Whose image is on that coin? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar's what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. They, were, they marveled, they were astonished at his teaching. You go on a few years and you come to Romans chapter 13 where the apostle Paul gives this very famous instruction. Let every person be subject, there's that word, to the governing authorities. For there is no authority. Now notice Paul doesn't use the word king here like Solomon does. It's broader. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So what's the What's the principle here? It's what Martin Luther called political obedience, and it's incumbent on the life of the people of God, generally speaking. We are a culture within a culture as the church. The church is its own culture within a larger culture called the United States of America or wherever a person might live that belongs to God. We're a society within a society, and as a culture within a culture and as a society within a society, The Bible says we're to live politically obedient to the civil authorities because God's the one that put them there. They're servants of God. That's what Paul said. They are instituted by God, which means that as we follow them, generally speaking, we are following God by being obedient to his command. Why? Because God is not the author of confusion, And it's often been said, even a bad government is better than no government at all. And so God institutes government because the alternative is absolute chaos. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Seems like we're not far from that even in the times in which we live now. And so God says, this is a way I'm establishing order to reward good and punish evil For as long as there is a world until Jesus comes again and transforms everything where there's no such thing as evil anymore, come Lord Jesus. But God says this is how we're going to do it. And he does that in every strata. We've already said that. He does it in the home, husbands, and wives. Every woman's favorite verse, wives, submit to yourselves, uh, submit yourselves unto your husbands in everything. Keep the bricks in your purses this morning. But that's what the Bible says. Why? Order, authority. In every relational dynamic, somebody's got to lead and others must follow. Otherwise, you cannot have order. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Just go home today and have one of your children say, you know what? I'm not going to follow your leadership anymore. That's antiquated. Let me give you an attitude adjustment upside your head, boy. You're not going to take that. No, order, authority. It's true in your workplace. It's true as citizens in the United States of America. The Bible says, generally speaking, to rebel against the king is to rebel against a God-given authority. And to rebel against a God-given authority 
is to rebel against God. And that's why you want to be very careful. See, God is the judge. All those rulers are going to stand in the presence of God one day, whether they realize it or not. Some of them already have. Amen. And they realize how poor a steward they were at what was a God-given responsibility. This is the oath of God. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Did you see that? So God makes a promise to rulers. You're not here because of your charisma. You're here because of my divine authority, and you're going to stand before my divine authority one day and give an account for how you have ruled over these people that all belong to me anyway. And so God makes a promise, and it's a promise of judgment. It's a promise of accountability. And so we're to leave the judgment to God fundamentally because God is the one who has instituted the ruler in the position that he or she is in. Now, practically, what does that mean for us? That we ought to be law-abiding citizens. How about that? I mean, we ought to be law-abiding and not rabble-rousers. We ought to be obedient to the laws rather than rebel against them, respectful of government rather than demeaning of it. And, you know, in our country, it's much easier to do that than in the biblical period because we're a nation of laws. We're not a nation of dictatorial tyranny like the biblical period people had to live under. So we ought to respect the rule of law, obey the law, pay our taxes, respond positively when we can, and you can't always, but generally when you can, respond positively to the leaders of our country. Certainly we ought to pray for them, whether we like them or not, agree with them or not. We ought to pray for their leadership, their wisdom, even when we don't agree with every single law. I don't agree with every single law. I mean, but if the sign says, and it's put there by the government, don't park here, I don't park there. When the sign says speed limit 55, well, that's another subject for another day. (laughs) We know how that system works, right? I got a speeding ticket while I was on vacation, and it ticked me off. I've only gotten a handful of those in, in nearly 59 years, 58 years. I, and ev- with the exception of one, and I know I got cops in the audience this morning, and I love every one of them, but every speeding ticket I've ever gotten has been for driving in the 40s, less than 50 miles an hour, every one of them except for one, and that one was doing 69 on the highway with people passing me the whole time. I'm not bitter about any of that. (laughs) So we don't have to agree with every single law. And we won't. But y'all know what I'm saying. Um, We ought to be law-abiding, respectful people who are known for that. Now, That's one side of the story. We flip the coin over, and with me having said all of that, can I say this morning, sometimes there comes a point where there's a conflict. 
where there's a conflict between submitting to an earthly authority on the one hand and staying true and obedient to God on the other. Now, I know what you want. You want me to do about 50 case studies this morning, and I'm not going to do it. One, because I don't have time to do it. Two, because one thing would lead to another and lead to another and lead to another. So we're not going to get into the case studies because some of them, quite frankly, are hard. Some of them are hard to know what the right thing to do is. But this, you know, kind of raises an important question. Does this kind of subjection, this kind of submission to authority have limits? Is it absolute that I have to submit no matter what, or is it limited? Well, there's no question it's limited. Submission is not absolute to any authority. It's always limited, whether it's a wife's submission to her husband or a child's submission to the parents or a worker's submission to their boss or a, a church member's submission to the pastor. All of that is not absolute. It's limited. And the same is true with the state. Uh, the principle of submission is such that we're to submit as the people of God right up to the point where obedience to the state would cause us to be disobedient to God. Everybody with me? Now, that's as simple and direct as I know how to make it. It would require you to submit to the state, would require you to disobey God and the clear instruction of his word. When a civil authority leads us to do something that God forbids or to not do something that God demands. It's at that point that the greater responsibility for the believer is not political obedience, but civil disobedience. And that's where resistance not only is appropriate or not only is uh, an option for God's people, it's actually appropriate for God's people. It's at that point we disobey the state in order that we might obey God. Does that make sense? That's civil disobedience. And there's all kinds of examples of that, by the way, in the Bible. How many of you remember the Hebrew midwives from the book of Exodus? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna basically, basically infanticide. You're going to break the baby's neck when they're delivered and say, we don't know what happened. And those women who did not have a copy of the Bible who did not have a written copy of the Torah, knew instinctively by the Spirit of God that that was a command they could not obey. And they didn't obey it. And we lift them high and we revere them, just as we do Daniel, who went to that lion's den rather than violate his conscience before God by doing what Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked king, was trying to contort him to do? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and... We used to sing that with a twist when I was a little kid. No, I mean, their king was Darius, who was about half as crazy. Ruled that for 30 days, nobody prays to any god but me. And they said, no, we'll take the punishment. Peter and the apostles, when the Sanhedrin said, here's the thing, you cannot street preach about Jesus and you must desist from any mention of the resurrection. What was their response? We must what? Obey God rather than, 
man. So all of those are examples of civil disobedience, and each of them are right. There are limits to submission. Sometimes the honorable thing to do is to resist and to say, no, I will not. Most of the time under our system of government, and aren't we so blessed to live in a democracy, amen? I mean, the early church, they didn't live under a democracy. They lived under Nero. And then men like Domitian and Caligula. These guys were crazy. And yet here you have the biblical writers inspired by the Spirit telling these early church Christians who did not live in a constitutional democracy, obey those guys. Do what they tell you to do. Be model citizens because they'll recognize you for that generally. And it didn't always. Sometimes they had to say no. When the Caesar demanded, when you go down to the temple that bears my image, there's a fire burning there and you take a pinch of incense and you toss it in there and you say as you put it in there, Caesar Kurios, Caesar is Lord. You and I will get along just fine. And many, if not most, wouldn't do it. They paid a price. Many of them lost their lives because of it, but they wouldn't do it. Because to do that would have caused them to disobey God in the process. You see, that's a beautiful example. Now, most of the time in our country, we get to obey God and man because most of the time there's not a tension there. And even when we disagree with a law, there are ways to mitigate against that where we live today. And isn't it wonderful to be a part of the United States of America? We can write letters to the editor. We can go to school board meetings. And boy, are people going to school board meetings. So I'm told. And if none of that works, we can go to the polls. And we can exercise our right to vote. Early church didn't have any of that. They were being told to do this, living under Roman tyranny and still commanded to submit and honor the king. Solomon says here in verse 3, do not be what? Do not be hasty to go from the king's presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. Solomon was a king, so he kind of understood protocol. In the ancient world, you had an audience with a king. That could have been a life or death matter. And here's what you didn't want to do. You had an audience to the king. There was a way to approach the king. And then there was a way to move away from the king. And it wasn't this way. That would get you killed. You never turned your back to the king. There's a great scene in the miniseries, John Adams, when John Adams, after the Constitutional Convention of the United States, was appointed ambassador to Great Britain. And that was crazy. Because the king of England, George III, knew all about this guy called Adams. And here he is coming into my court. There's a great scene there where they have this awkward meeting for the first time face-to-face. And then Adams leaves just like this, bowing before the king. And the same was true all the way back to the age of Solomon. 
You don't disrespect the king. You don't rebuke the king's authority. And Solomon is saying when he says, don't be hasty, don't be hasty in turning away from the king. In other words, think carefully about how you deal with authorities. There are times to disobey authorities, but you need not be hasty in that. You need to be prayerful and you need to be biblical and you need to think very carefully before choosing disobedience. That's the point here. But never forget that when you do, when that time comes, and sometime it might for all of us, it's never an excuse to be ugly. Can I say that again? Did y'all hear me? It's never an excuse to be ugly. It's never an excuse to be unchristlike. It's never an excuse to be unlawful. And the Lord knows it's never, never, never an excuse to be violent. There's a time to submit and there is a time to resist. And whenever resistance is called for, the Bible would teach, take your stand righteously. Look like Jesus when you do it. Verse 3, do not take your stand in an evil cause. So whenever God's people are on the receiving end of injustice, it can be tempting to respond in a worldly kind of way, and many have for many years. And we need to resist that urge because it's never the right response. Those three Jewish men who went to Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, didn't try to organize a coup d'etat. They didn't plot to assassinate the king. They didn't even curse the king. They identified a law as oppressive. They said, no, we cannot do it. It would cause us to violate our conscience before God. And they just refused to obey it and stood ready to suffer the consequences for it. They didn't know it from Scripture. But that's a New Testament testimony to Paul's great admonition from the 12th chapter of Romans. Romans 12, 17, and 21. Let's read it together. It's on the screen. Everybody, together. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. That's a sound and balanced response to what we're talking about today. That we would use Solomon's poetic imagery from chapter 3 where Solomon says there is a time for every season under heaven. And then he goes on a time to be born and a time to die, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to build and a time to tear down. If we were to stay with that image, Solomon probably would say right here, there is a time to obey and there is a time to resist. It's not always easy to know when to do what, which is another reason why it's so important for all of us as the people of God to hide the word of God in our heart that we might not sin against God, to abide every day in a personal relationship of communion with Jesus Christ and to walk day by day in the spirit 
of God. You do those three things and life won't nearly be as challenging or difficult. 1 Peter 2.17 is sound and balanced wisdom. Good place to land today. Here's what it says. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is God's divine word and all God's people said.